Layman's is proud to sponsor Self-Sufficient Life. From time-tested garden tools to nostalgic homestead decor, Layman's can help you enjoy the self-sufficient life. Find Layman's online at L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. If you're the daughter of a famous homesteader, you're destined to live off the land yourself, right? Hey, it's Tim Young of the SelfSufficientLife.com. Today, you'll find out what falls from the sky when a teenager rebels against the mother of modern homesteading. So imagine your mother wrote the book on country living. I mean, literally. In addition to bearing seven children in the 1970s, Carla Emery also found time to write the Encyclopedia of Country Living. And that's the first book that many wannabe homesteaders place on their mantles. It's a million-word tome that's on my bookshelf, and I've thumbed the pages until my copy's frayed. We sometimes talk about the Encyclopedia of Country Living as the eighth child in the family and her favorite child. (laughs) And that's Esther Emery, Carla Emery's youngest child. Carla was 30 when her first child was born in 1970, but 40 by the time Esther, her seventh, arrived. In addition to seven children, those 10 incredibly eventful years also produced seven editions of her book, which began as an old-fashioned recipe book. Amidst all that, Carla homeschooled her children before it was even fashionable. Not that it's fashionable today. I'm the the youngest of a big family and kind of a a close-knit family, partly because our experiences were hard to translate to our peers. In the 1970s, homeschooling was not as popular and not not even as um, possible. In some cases, it was was considered, um, was really frowned upon by the school district. So being homeschooled children of a back to the lander was not a popular status, really. But among Carla's seven children, there seems to be a clear line of distinction between the first five and the last two in terms of childhood experiences. That's because Carla's book became so popular that she was constantly on the road promoting it. She'd pack up her first five kids and sometimes a goat in the car and hit the road for media appearances. This happened all just a couple of years before Esther and her brother, child number six, were even born. Sometimes I thought that my my brother was the only person in the world who really understood me because we had these shared experiences that seemed to separate us from particularly the 80s and 90s trends towards affluence and material goods and sort of speed and Silicon Valley attitudes. In a back to the land era, when it seemed everyone wanted to know how to make it in the country, Carla's book began selling like hotcakes. But Esther grew up on the latter side of that trend as the go-go 80s and 90s saw Silicon Valley capitalistic values render the idea of homesteading as quaint and archaic. But in the years just before Esther was born, Carla constantly promoted her book, hauling her first five kids from Idaho to California to appear on all the big shows. She was on The Mike Douglas Show, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, To Tell the Truth, Good Morning America. Heck, Carla even milked a goat on the Phil Donahue show. But this story isn't about Carla Emery. It's about Carla's youngest child, Esther, who's too young to recall any of this. There are all these publicity pictures of my mother's life as a writer that don't include me. And these these pictures of this land that I don't remember, I'm just barely too young to even remember it. Um, So it has a kind of mythological sense to it, this grand myth of my family that I am told over and over again, and I, I believe it, but I didn't personally get to see it. And that's because things changed in a hurry for Carla's family. And it wasn't just the change in the go-go cultural values. It was also a string of misfortune. So by the time Esther was born, things were already starting to spiral downhill quickly for Carla and her family. It all happened pretty much all at once, shortly after I was born. My, my brother tells the story of me coming back as a newborn. The day that I came home as a newborn, there was no water in the house. And there was, he remembers it being a, a, a hard time. And then here was this new baby um, at, right at the time that there was just crisis every which way. You see, at the height of her popularity, Carla started the School of Country Living to teach homesteading skills on her 386-acre Idaho ranch. But just a year after it opened, 
The school was destroyed by a flash flood and couldn't be reopened. And then things got worse. Carla's husband, Mike, became sick and required several costly operations. My dad wasn't wasn't well, and my mother was had become the, their sole income, but she had actually pulled back from the public life and was trying hard to be a full-time homesteader. You know, she had carried that kind of um, conflict that that actually I, I know very, very well from my life right now, which is that the simple life is one thing if you're just living it. When you portray the simple life for a public audience, there's a natural conflict of interest there. Of course. So Carla was torn. She loved homesteading and inspiring others. But the more she traveled to spread the word, the less she was actually homesteading herself or spending time with her family. So she changed course. She stopped traveling to promote her book and instead devoted herself to her husband, her children, and her homestead. And the good news was that eventually her husband recovered. And Carla began to think that after several years of hardship, after losing the school, after the illness with her husband, things were finally heading back in the right direction. And that's when her husband left her. When he did, Carla, the mother of modern homesteading, if there ever was one, lost her 386-acre homestead and did the unthinkable. She moved to an in-town apartment to raise her children. That land was all sold off and my parents were divorced and my mother moved with her children into town. So whereas Carla's youngest children had known the life of open spaces, wildlife, and farm chores, that life was essentially a fairy tale to Esther. A lot of my personal experience as the youngest of seven children is as the town child of a single parent. And I actually had limited experience or even awareness of rural life. And yet I had this identity as the child of a famous homesteader. And because Esther's childhood experiences came after Carla Chain's course, she saw her mother quite differently as a child than her older siblings. It was my perception that she really was a has-been, kind of a failed or used-up um, author and teacher because I was born in 1979. And besides the personal crisis, the family crisis that happened for us in the 80s, also the cultural trend turned very much away from natural living and back to the land values. So I thought that she was really not, not much of an influence at all. Homesteading is about living freely and independently, for sure. But to a very, very large extent, homesteading is centered around food. Growing food, tending gardens, preserving food, raising animals, hunting. There are lots of chores, but the chief goal is to produce food. And in a bizarre twist of fate, Carla the homesteader came to regard the value of food very differently from Esther, the teenage rebeller. The first time I ever made myself throw up was the night before actually a crew meet. Um, I was on a lightweight crew team when I was a teenager um, and I needed to be a certain weight. And I just think that that kind of behavior is just considered very normal. Eating disorders are more common in our current age than I think many people want to confess. And that's how Esther's struggles with bulimia began. As she said, there are certainly social pressures that contribute to an unhealthy relationship with food. But beyond those, Esther was particularly susceptible because she had emphatically resisted her mother's identity as a homemaker, which is centered around making food. And throwing up was as vivid a form of protest against her mother's values as Esther could muster. I was literally throwing up my mother's lifestyle. I was so specifically rejecting the things that she held dear. Well, it's a sad thing to say, but to some extent, all that's just part of being a modern teenager. Outrageous social pressures, resenting parental choices, blaming parents for failed marriages. But even though she was no longer a homesteader, Carla continued to homeschool Esther, who had a willful personality to match her mother's. My mother homeschooled me, and both by her personality and by mine, I excelled academically. 
which allowed me to uh, have college acceptances at the age of 15. I turned 15 in April and graduated from high school in May. And I was in college that September and completely on my own. That was in 1994. Meanwhile, with her youngest child now headed to college, Carla regained her passion for the Encyclopedia of Country Living. She hit the road and basically lived out of her van, something she would do for the next four years as she stayed with local hosts as she spread the gospel of self-reliance across the country to anyone who would listen. But even though Esther was intellectually ready for college at 15, and let's face it, she was still only 15. That was also the moment of a, an emotional split between me and my mother. So at the age of 15, she and I had an emotional, hmm, say this. It's been over 20 years since that emotional split. Yet the feelings are as raw now as ever, as Esther recalls that time from the more mature perspective today of a woman with children of her own. This is the hardest moment of my whole story, Tim, right here. So I was 15 and I was in college and I didn't really know how to get along in the world. And my mother was traveling. She was selling her book and I couldn't get a hold of her. We didn't have the the internet back then. All she had was a, was a phone. And um, I felt so abandoned by her that I decided to just literally cut the ties. I called my father, with whom I had a, a more difficult relationship, but who at that point had four walls. He had an actual home. He wasn't uh, traveling like my mother did. So I called him and he said that he would take me in if I legally had custody changed to him. So I actually drew up those papers and had them sent to my mother and she signed them. And it was one of the most painful moments of my entire life. My mother and I didn't speak to each other for years after that. That crisis that caused Esther to react this way was a result of her not only enrolling in college at such a young age, but moving far away and immersing herself in a very different culture at the same time. I went to Smith College, which is in Massachusetts, um, and I was an Idaho girl. And had, although I had traveled a bit with my mother, the Massachusetts culture was not something that I was able to embrace or feel comfortable in immediately. So I was I was a stranger in a strange land. And Tim, I literally had everything I owned in a cardboard box. The only pair of shoes I owned were a pair of, of tennis shoes and the snow was 18 inches deep. And and that's really how I came to the point that I called my dad and said, you know, can I come back to Idaho? Can I come and stay with you? Because I had just taken a risk that was too great. I just wasn't a grown up yet. And I, I needed to to get a little more support. That event marked the moment when Esther fully rejected what her mother had stood for. It meant that even though Carla was a public champion of the Back to the Land movement, Esther went in the opposite direction. So at the time, she rejected her mother's values and never really learned homesteading or self-reliance skills at all from her. But things weren't necessarily better with her father. I didn't stay with my father very long. I turned 16 and got my ability to work full-time. I worked full-time in a nursing home from the age of 16 on. And I started dating the man who's now my husband a few years after that, and I just started my adult life. I became an independent person at age 16. So I guess like many 16-year-olds, Esther thought of herself as independent. But even though she had rejected her, Carla was still her mother and did her best to look after Esther. My mother used to come to the town where I lived and leave things on my doorstep. We didn't speak to each other. I couldn't be in a room with her, but she would leave gifts on my doorstep. This was partly to look after Esther because, hey, that's what mothers do. But it was also because Carla was becoming deeply concerned about what she believed was an imminent threat. That was leading up to Y2K. She was giving me things to prepare for the potential of disaster. So she gave me some MREs and a, a solar-powered flashlight. She gave me an amazing sleeping bag, which I still have to this day. But while Carla prepared herself and others for Y2K, Esther was falling in love back in Idaho. And that led her down a very different path. Nick and I started dating 
when we were both just teenagers and his passion was theater. He worked as a, a scenery person building the sets and he did a little bit of acting, but mostly what he loved was to build a world, an imaginary world. And he could work with any material. Even when he was 18 or 19, he could work with steel and he could work with wood and he would make these beautiful sets. And, and I liked spending time with him. And even as at that point, we became a team where I would envision a story as a storyteller and he would, he would create it in a physical world. And we made a pretty smooth transition from our uh, college experiences of theater to freelance theater in Southern California. Esther's love for story and theater was actually absorbed through her homeschooling. It turns out that Carla loved to read more than simply books about self-reliance. She gave me a love for story. She loved poetry and she loved Shakespeare. And whether she intended or not, she gave me a real love of the, the lights of the stage. So Esther and Nick took that love for the stage to Southern California and lived a life about as far removed from the back-to-land values her mother embraced as you possibly can. We went to Southern California where we were able to connect with the freelance theater community there. And we made plays for years. For years, we kept time by place. And I would direct and I would stage manage and I would work with actors and Nick would build these amazing sets. And it was a, it was a good life. A good life, but not a life without potholes. It was an unstable kind of rocky moment to moment life. Nick and I both resisted traditional values. We were country kids who left the country. We were country kids who went to the city and we needed to know what it was like to live in the city. We needed to know what it was like to experience our, our freedom, our independence, and some degree of anonymity. But trouble loomed, as it always seems to, when kids enter the candy store alone for the first time. In a way, Esther's story became another one of those life-in-the-fast-lane moments, kind of like the story I told about Mark Goodwin in Episode 5 of Self-Sufficient Life, when he was a drug addict before he became a best-selling Christian author. My marriage went into a complete crisis. So what, the first thing that happened is that we decided to have a baby. And uh, I tried to juggle my theater career, which at that point was quite successful. I had some prestige and some recognition. I was juggling that career with my marriage and now with a child. And I dropped all the ball. We ended up with infidelity. We ended up with a lot of anger and frustration. We ended up basically deciding to split up. Esther had this idea that she'd take the baby, go to New York City, and Nick could just do whatever he wanted to. She figured that this was simply a phase of her life that was over. But it's a bit mysterious what changes a person's heart, but I definitely had a change of heart. I had a moment of saying, no, that isn't what I want to do. I want to stay married. I want to find some kind of moral grounding again. I want to find something that I've really never had in my life, which is stability, self-awareness, the ability to be peaceful and to rest. And so I began then a journey of really changing everything. I stopped working. I became a stay-at-home mom and at that point of a second child as well. And I I felt tremendous loss because I had identified myself by producing beautiful theater and producing stories. I didn't almost know who I was if I wasn't running from moment to moment and from play to play. But I also felt a tremendous hunger and need for spiritual health and grounding and just to know who I was when I wasn't running. Well, Esther and Nick were definitely on the fast-paced treadmill living their Southern California lifestyles. And with her awakening, this is starting to sound like many stories I tell, where a person or a couple wake up and jump off the rat race treadmill. I wouldn't say that I jumped off so much as I fell off. If I had continued to have success, if I hadn't ever made any mistakes, I think I would have kept going. And that's why, although of course I have tremendous regrets for the huge mistakes that I made, I also have some peace with it for realizing that 
Nick and I were on a certain path and that's where that path led us. And by good fortune and the grace of God, we have been able to see that and to kind of jump over onto a different path. And we have so much health and satisfaction now. I, I don't necessarily have regrets, even though, of course, I wish that life were easier. It just sometimes that's the only way you can get to where you need to be. Well, Esther and Nick sure took a long and winding path to where they needed to be. And we're going to find out where the story takes them right after this. Hey, it's Tim Young. When my wife and I moved to the country, Layman's.com was one of our first stops. That's where we found the oil lamps, canning supplies, hand crank grain mills, wood cooking stoves, even the emergency supplies that we depend on. Founded in the 1950s, Layman started as a hardware store serving the Amish in Kidron, Ohio. Today, Layman specializes in practical, non-electric goods that will help you live the simpler life you're craving. So even if you work in the city, you can still be a modern homesteader. And Layman's has the nostalgic and practical home decor and kitchen appliances you're looking for. So whether you're looking for time-tested farm and garden tools or off-grid stove and appliances, Layman's has the high-quality products that every farmer, modern homesteader, and prepared person needs. Layman's, for a simpler life. Find them at laymans.com. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. We're back with the story of Esther Emery, youngest daughter of the mother of modern homesteading, Carla Emery. Okay, so here's a quick recap. Esther grew up in Idaho, rejected her mother's homesteading values, and went to college in Boston. She found herself out of her element, went to live with her dad, and studied theater at the University of Idaho. Then she fell in love, moved to Southern California, and experienced the highs and the lows of adult life. With their marriage on the ropes, it was time for Esther and Nick to have a fresh start. And they got that fresh start back at the source of Esther's first crisis in Boston. We went to Boston, partly for a fresh start and par- partly because when I had stopped working, we only had one income and my husband needed a better job. So he got a job working for American Repertory Theater, which is the theater associated with Harvard University. And that was enough income to support the whole family. And I became a stay-at-home mom. So I became a stay-at-home mom 2,000 miles away from all of my friends. I found an increasing dependency on the internet for almost everything. I would wake up in the morning and go immediately to the internet to try and connect with my friends, to try and find some experience of relationship and community, as well as entertainment, as well as intellectual stimulation. I was finding every last little thing in my computer screen, and I felt almost like I was merging with my computer screen. Okay, so this all happened in 2009 and reflects the tipping point in Esther's life where she found herself, this is my impression anyway, becoming more and more like the mother she rejected. And just as her mother aspired to unplug and go off grid, Esther decided to unplug from the internet for a whole year. It was it was a somewhat impulsive decision to make it an entire year. I guess it would have been a more mature thing to say, I think I'll use the internet a little bit less. But I, I was in such a point of crisis and, and exhaustion, I really couldn't imagine doing a little thing. And I didn't have the maturity to just pull back a little bit. So I, I made it into an adventure, which is something that I do well. I made it into a story, which is something that I do well. And I said, I'm going to go for an entire year without the internet. And this will give my unstructured life some structure. It will give me the opportunity to consider some social issues that interest me. It will give me an opportunity to focus on my family and my relationships, which have been so neglected for so, for so long. And it'll give me a chance for a fresh start. Before unplugging, Esther was like many among us. She wondered if she was doomed to spend the best years of her life having stupid arguments and comment threads on Facebook and YouTube. Like many of us, Esther experienced all the rudeness that comes with posts from anonymous haters, similar to what Daisy Luther talked about at length in Episode 7 of Self-Sufficient Life. It's a different thing to interact with someone in person than it is to interact with them through the pixels, through a computer screen. We're much more willing to tolerate 
anger and hatred and even shaming tactics than I think we would be if these things were, were said in person. The thing I'm concerned about is that because we tolerate bullying on the internet, we're then going to tolerate bullying in person. So for many reasons, Esther took the plunge. She said, I'm going to go a whole year without accessing the internet, starting now. Then came the first morning of Esther's adventure. My first day that I was going to go without the internet, by 10.30 in the morning, I was on the internet. Way to go, Esther. Oh, oh my goodness. I have so much less control over this than I realized. This is, this is a physical thing. This is tied into my sense of self. This is tied into my sense of necessity it, at a deeper level than I had realized. Take two. Okay, Esther started over and learned to manage her impulses for going online. Then she had to figure out what to do with all that free time. Well, I sure did a lot of reading. And then eventually I did a lot of cooking. And I did do a lot of spending time with my family. But right at first, I realized that I was going to have to spend time with myself. So all these things that I had been running from since I was 15, since I had that crisis as a teenager, since I had become bulimic, over the course of months in my year without internet, I found myself revisiting and addressing so many pieces of myself and my past that just wanted a little attention, a little tender, loving care, and a little bit of healing. It's strange to think about the internet as a necessity. But Esther had to learn to live without the modern necessities of life. I mean, social media, the ability to look up the hottest recipe or watch videos of cats playing with wrapping paper. Turns out that wasn't so hard to give up. But the thing that was really difficult for Esther, at least at first, related to who she was, or at least who the internet said she was. I had presented my identity in a certain way on the internet. I had sort of left notes around so that if people were to run into my profile or to, to find or to search for my name, they would find some information about who I am and what I was doing. And I found myself suddenly in a panic that I no longer had control over that kind of imprint of myself that was appearing on the internet. It's a funny concept, isn't it? You're not who you are. You're who the internet says you are. Okay, but back to our story. Esther read books. She became more comfortable in the kitchen, quite a feat given her struggle with bulimia. She spent more time with her family and confronted old demons. But after all that, she still longed for an identity. After all, she was no longer working. Well, if I'm not working, then what am I doing? And so in that sense, the year without internet was a little first person research. It was a research project that I intended to eventually turn into a book or some kind of um, story to be shared with others. And so I was writing down uh, a daily log of what my experiences were and what it felt like as a person going without the internet so that I could eventually share that. That book became sort of a spiritual memoir that you might find in the Christian living section of a bookstore. It's called What Falls from the Sky. What Falls from the Sky refers to weather. <laughs> you know, when I was sitting in Boston and didn't have the internet, I found myself kind of constantly looking out the windows. And Boston has a great deal of, of weather. Um, one of the first things that I saw in my year without internet in Boston was a great deal of snow snow falling from the sky. And so I followed that metaphor through from the snow to the rain to the sun. And then the last section is called the fog. But it also refers to my understanding of grace, which is that we receive this capacity to regenerate. We receive this ability to try again and to be better. And that's not something that you can manufacture or make. It's something that comes to us. And so that's what I'm referring to when I say what falls from the sky. The book was just released December 2016, and I got to say, it's a beautiful read. There's a link to the book on the show notes page at theselfsufficientlife.com if you'd like to check it out, and I definitely recommend it. But here's the thing. Everything has a beginning and an end. So after 12 months with no internet, Esther's internet project 
came to an end. The morning that I went back on the internet, I think I didn't leave my computer screen for hours at a time. My children didn't know what had happened. There were so many emails. Think about it, having to collect over a year, there were thousands of them. Not to mention the people who watched me pop up on instant messaging and wanted to message me immediately. I had multiple conversations going on at once and trying to scan through these emails. And it was it was a, a pretty wild experience after I year of enforced quiet. And during that year of enforced quiet, something changed for Esther and Nick. I don't know if you'd call it a discovery or simply ancestral roots calling, but we wanted to go back to Idaho. And that was a surprise to both of us because we had left Idaho with such passion. But they couldn't go back to Idaho right away. They were saddled with student loans and other debt, so they stuck to a strict financial plan to pay it all off. They spent three more years in Boston, but once they paid off the debt, they bought a piece of property in Idaho and became off-grid homesteaders. We did realize that we wanted to go home. The circle was coming complete. Just like her mother before her, Esther was summoned back to the land, to a simpler life. It was the beginning of a remarkable transformation that, sadly, her mother wasn't able to witness. We finally were able to reconnect and be able to be in the space together, have conversations, and begin to heal some of the old hurts. But she died when I was 25, and at that point, we still, we still were not completely healed. I've had to do some of my apologies and begging for forgiveness after the fact. And I, I do believe that, that um, at least for me, that healing has, has come. Carla died of complications from a heart attack in 2005 while on a speaking tour. She preached the gospel of self-reliance to the end, seemingly taking it to the grave. But even prior to her passing, Esther was able to witness the rise in popularity of her mother's work, which continues to this day. It was a gradual sort of recognition of her place and her importance as cultural trends were shifting. I started to realize that there were people all over the country who were taking her in, who were appreciating her, who were keeping her going. But it really wasn't until after her death that she had her full comeback. That's just the irony of life, that it wasn't until after her death that a new edition of her book was published and the numbers really started to click up again. And there was there was money that came in from that. The royalties from the 40th anniversary edition of her book were, were rather impressive in comparison to anything I had seen in my lifetime. And I began to realize that the whole culture had turned to perhaps this myth that I hadn't seen in the 70s, perhaps reliving these days that I had been told about but had not seen with my own eyes, slow food became a thing and people became concerned about climate change and people became concerned about GMO foods and soil depletion and all of these things that she had talked about were suddenly in the newspapers. I thought, oh my goodness, I guess she did. I mean, people sometimes call her prophetic. I guess she, she did know these things that I had thought she was off the wall or an oddball or something are, are now fairly universally accepted. Yeah, so whether she wanted to or not as a youngster, as an adult, Esther began following in her mother's footsteps. Nick dreamed of building a timber home from trees he harvested and milled. Esther suddenly longed for a much simpler life with her family. So they bought that bare piece of Idaho land in 2013 to pursue those dreams. And for the past three years, they've been living in a yurt. Which is a round wall tent. It's a, a an old technology from Asia and a, just a, a wonderful uh, living arrangement. As Esther said, it's a round space with lattice frame walls. The walls are covered with canvas. Esther's is about 314 square feet, which is yeah, tight, especially for five people, Esther, Nick, and their three children. But hey, it's easy to keep an eye on the kids, right? 
Nick has been busy building their timber home, which they're just now moving into after three years. And at just over 900 square feet, it seems like a mansion, I'm sure. But even in their new cabin, they're living a very simple life that most of us can't relate to. And they're doing it by choice. We still have no refrigeration. We have a cooler, which we put a few things in. But yes, I think the way I eat is quite shocking to some people. We eat very simply and we eat in season. We do sometimes use a freezer, which is in town. Uh, uh, Nick's dad lives down in the valley about 45 minutes away from us. And he has a freezer in his garage that we sometimes put things in. We raise our own chickens. And so that when we, when we take care of the chickens, they go into that freezer. Um, but I, I eat very simply and as much as possible out of the garden or out of my uh, cellar where I have a lot of canned goods. I have a freezer, of course. I mean, who doesn't? I'd hate to go without ice, but many things that people put in freezers, I prefer to put on the shelf. Like when we process chickens, deer, beef, pork, or whatnot, I prefer to pressure can it and stick it on the shelf. It lasts forever, requires no electricity, and it's our version of fast food. That's exactly how, how I do it. We just had some goat meat last night. We had um, a big project outside, and we're working hard right up until dusk. And then it's just the easiest thing in the world to open up a mason jar, and it has some goat meat in it. And then I just separate. The way I do it is I separate the meat from the juice, and use the juice to make the gravy, and put the meat in a frying pan. And then I have a, a meat and gravy, have some... I, some potatoes also out of a mason jar and maybe I've made fresh bread that day and if not I can make some cornbread and it it's convenience food believe it or not even off grid there is such a thing as convenience food yeah baby that's how we do it can all that squash in the summer then make a quick squash casserole in the winter do the same thing with all those root vegetables and fill that pantry up and that's why our pantry is as big as Esther's yurt but Esther goes full throttle when it comes to living off-grid. I have been cooking on a wood stove exclusively for three and a half years, and it has been a challenge for me. I am not as easy a cook as I might have been if I had never had a history of eating disorders. I, ha I certainly have no symptoms of an eating disorder at this point, but I still have a little tension that I carry in the kitchen, which can make cooking tasks a little bit harder for me. It can make it a little harder for me to multitask than it is for someone who's very comfortable in a kitchen environment. And, and it took me a while to realize that, well, it took me a while to master watching the fire in the wood stove while also dealing with the rest of the meal preparation. So it's kind of another thing you have to think about. Um, feeding it with wood, making sure that the airflow is correct, being able to tell how hot the fire is and whether or not it has heated the oven. It's another level of um, observation and awareness. And it, I did find it challenging, but I tell you, Tim, I was so proud when I, when I nailed it. <laughs> You know, when I started, when I started to get perfect bread out of that wood stove and showed off my perfect wood stove bread, I was really proud. And that's, that's not nothing, you know, that ability to, to be productive with our own hands. It's, it's one of the most wonderful things that's available to us as humans in this life, the ability to do our own work and do it well. It's a great satisfaction. So I read in your mother's book that you can do laundry without a washing machine. Have you ever tried that? Laundry. Oh, my goodness. Laundry is the hardest. When I talk to other off-grid people, we just all moan and groan about laundry. I think that laundry, uh, that laundry facilities really have transformed our lives almost more than anything else. So we actually have a bike-powered washer that Nick made for me that I can just turn, I can get on the bike and run the pedals and it will turn the, the washer. Say what? And it's perfect in the summertime because we have water gravity fed to it and we just use whatever temperature of water and I add soap right in the top and I can read a book while I do it and I enjoy the exercise. Say what? In the wintertime, it's just, it's just a wreck. I don't even want to deal with it in the wintertime because <laughs> I have to pour the water in and it, it's also uncomfortable to be on the bike outside in the winter. So mostly in the wintertime, I just take my clothes into a laundromat, which is also an inconvenience, but it gives me a chance to go into town and see some people. And go to the bathroom, right? I guess since you don't seem to have indoor plumbing. We have a composting outhouse. So we actually do pull the, the material, the composting material out of it once a year. And we have a nice vent system and it's it's really perfectly manageable. 
but it's outside. So kind of the same level of inconvenience as the wood stove. We're, we're looking forward to doing a composting toilet actually inside our home in the cabin, but that's still a work in process. You hear that, honey? Next year, you're getting an indoor toilet, but it's still going to be one of them composting jobs. So let's see, no refrigeration, a wood cook stove, a bicycle powered washing machine, and a composting outhouse. Dang, girl, you are off grid. Sort of makes you wonder what mama would say. I believe she would have a very deep sense of recognition. She was troubled as a teenager as well, and she has also had her changes and her switches. I think she would recognize not only who I am, but the, the long and curving path I've had to take to get here. So Esther was drawn to the simple life, just as her mother was. But just as she wasn't quite ready to live in a faraway college at 15, Esther found her first year on the homestead a bit more than she was ready for, especially when she found herself alone in the woods with her young children and a bear. So it was the first weekend that my husband was away. He had gone to California to do a little work to help us with our financial situation, which was a bit strained at that point. So I was alone in the woods without any communication um, because at that point we didn't have internet or power and with three very small children. So my four-year-old daughter was looking out the window and she said, mommy, there's a bear. And I um, thought, oh, that's a funny thing for her to say. And I went over to the window and sure enough, there was a bear, a black bear, very close to our yurt. I was inside with two little girls. My six-year-old son was outside, and so was the bear. So figuring out how to stay calm, make the best decision. Um, we did not at that point have a firearm on the property, although we do now. I literally bent my pots and pans from banging them together. And I was able to get the bear at some distance, but he kept hanging around for days. Yikes. This sudden environmental change from sunny Southern California to cosmopolitan Boston to forest isolation with cougars and bears was more than Esther could handle at the time. But it wasn't just the wildlife. It was all the struggles associated with growing food and just living independently. So the youngest daughter of the mother of modern homesteading decided she'd had enough. We did go back to town. And I, at that point, felt like it was not working. So I took a month or so away from, actually it was a little bit more than that, away from the homestead after our first winter. And at that point, it was just simply, I I was too tired. I was spent. I didn't have anything more to give to it. From our first winter in the woods and dealing with my third child being a newborn in the woods without running water, at that point I was not nearly as competent on the wood stove as I am now. So every single day was such a challenge, just getting up and getting through the things that I needed to do. And I had planted a garden and that first year by garden, hardly anything even survived, let alone thrived. I had... Um, what little gardening I had done as an adult, I had done in Boston. So then to come back to Idaho and try to translate those gardening skills while also living off grid and taking care of a newborn and two other children, it, it simply wore me down. But of course, Esther came back to the woods due in large part to how much Nick wanted to maintain that lifestyle. So he worked harder than ever to lure Esther back into the wilderness. My marriage brought me back to the homestead. My husband's response to my wanting to go back to town was basically to start working like a maniac. I mean, that man worked so hard. So when I came back from my month and a half or so away, he had built our outdoor shower. He had gotten the pieces of what is now my bike powered washer and he had milled at least a dozen trees. I mean, he just, the way he describes it, he just 
got up with the, with the sun and this is full summer. He got up with the sun and he worked and he fell into bed at the end of the day. And I don't even know what he ate. You know, he lived on the, on the fumes <laughs> and, he, and he just really wanted to communicate to me that, he, that it was worth it to him, you know, and that if he had to kick it up a notch, he was willing to do that. Of course, there's all kinds of dangers living in major cities, murders, muggings, carjackings. But Esther had to get comfortable with the dangers of wildlife if she was going to make it back in the wilderness. I have really struggled with that level of literal fear that I had for my children and the, the question of whether I could possibly justify the, the having put my children into this circumstance. Um, in retrospect, I it was a kind of a trial by fire to find out kind of whether I had the chops to make it in the woods. We haven't had a bear come and hang around since then, but there still are bears in these woods and there also are cougars, there also are other animals. And I feel a great deal more confident now in terms of our ability to protect ourselves, but also our level of awareness. To a degree, it's something we all have to get comfortable with when we move to the wilderness or the country. It's a strange feeling at first, not having houses tucked in right next to you. You're sleeping in a house surrounded by open fields or densely packed woods. Either way, there could be anything out there, right? I remember how my wife, Liz, was scared of coyotes when we first moved to the country, and turkey vultures. As she saw them circling overhead, she just knew good and well that they were going to swoop down and pick up our silky terrier. So, we had to get comfortable with this lifestyle, which of course we have. Esther has too, and is looking more and more like her mother every day. We do have a, a much more substantial garden and we're doing all of our own meat because we have goat as well as chicken. And we also uh, produce our own building materials and we produce our own fuel because we heat with wood and we are building mostly with the, the materials that we have here on hand. The garden is a work in progress and um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to focus more on it next year. We have our our elderberries and blackberries and wild apples. And I also am, am into medicinal herbs and we have some of those that I grew myself, but most of those are foraged, you know, the yarrow and the nettle we just find in the forest. Um, yeah, so I have a whole cellar full of things that have come from the ground here. It's very satisfying. Esther and Nick have steered their lives, or hung on at least, down the winding road that has led them to the simple life. It's a life that she rebelled against as a kid and didn't even believe was real. Yet, here she is, striving to live the simple life that her mother always wanted to live, but wasn't always able to live. I think for my mother, the simple life was appreciating where you are and what you have in your hands, which for her would be what God has given you. It was her great pride to be able to feed her family from what was there as opposed to running off around the world looking for something that wasn't there. It was her great pride to be satisfied with the moments that were there and the people she was surrounded by, and as opposed to some kind of a, of a hunt to go out and make a different life. She wanted the ability to be satisfied with right where she was and, and right what she already had. And I think for me, there's a, a tremendous contrast between a, a life lived towards a sense of productivity and accomplishment as opposed to a life that's very grateful and appreciative. The, it's really the difference between living in abundance and living in scarcity. If you live in abundance, then you say to yourself, I am grateful for the things that I have. So grateful that I'm willing to spend hours upon hours upon hours harvesting and managing and storing these things that that wouldn't have value to someone who would rather just go and pick them up at the store. Day by day, the circle of life is filling in for Esther. She's taken a long and winding road through life so far, yet she's right back where she started, in Idaho. But her outlook has changed greatly in the last 20 years, especially in terms of how she views her mother. The way I understand my mother now is, is not very intellectual. It's a, at a very gut level. I just feel so much sisterhood with her. And I, I have so much awareness of the cravings that she felt 
this desire to be joyful and capable and loving, the desire to have a, a, a loving family under one roof and able to stay together and be together, the desire for ritual and meaning and for a life that that is lived moment to moment instead of the kind of life that you dash through and then at the end you wonder what happened. So I feel a great deal of sisterhood with everything that she taught. And and I think I just am... I'm past the question of whether or not we're the same. I've spent so much time on that question. I'm just kind of tired of it. I'm ready to be sisters with my mother. You know, I'm ready to recognize that we we have blood in common and I'm so grateful for all that she has gifted me in terms of her lineage. And in terms of values, we just are, we're just lined up side by side. It's a great honor to have been a part of her legacy. The show notes from today's episode are available on my website, theselfsufficientlife.com. There's also a complete transcript of this episode if you'd like to read it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And please, please take just a second to leave a review. It helps with the rankings and it allows others to learn about a self-sufficient life. Okay, there are a number of ways you can keep up with Esther Emery and her adventures in modern homesteading. Start by heading over to EstherEmery.com. There you can find links to her TEDx speech, her Facebook page, and the YouTube channel that she and Nick maintain. It's called Fouch-O-Matic Off-Grid. And don't forget to get a copy of both Carla's book, The Encyclopedia of Country Living, and Esther's new book, What Falls from the Sky. It's a great read. I've got links to both of them in the show notes. Esther and Nick took a rather tumultuous and winding journey out of the rat race. But you don't have to. Why not go online right now to download the Self-Sufficient Roadmap? It's a step-by-step guide I created to help you chart your course out of the rat race. It's free, and it's only available on my website at theselfsufficientlife.com. Grab it so you can begin to opt out today. Alarm wakes me up and I'm right out the door. Fighting traffic in a car that I'm still paying for A cup of coffee, four dollars gone They stick me in a cubicle And now I'm somebody's pawn The concrete jungles all around me There's gotta be a better way I'm sick and tired of staring at a screen all day While strangers teach and watch my children play I'm sick and tired of stressing over which bills to pay Not gonna live my life that way I'm opting out today Oh, I'm opting out today They hand me a paycheck so I can pay all I owe Kids want to play but I always gotta go